Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to be going through Exodus some more. Uh, Exodus has uh, two different sections in it where it talks about building the tabernacle and the garments of the priests, and we kind of skip through that to some degree because it is such an entrenched area in symbolism, because the tabernacle itself is a symbol of the structure of the kingdom of God as it was presented by Moses. And even the garments of the high priests uh, are a symbolic structure of the tabernacle and therefore also a structure of how it works. And uh, like I said, I've been going through the uh, Jordan Peterson Symposium recordings that they made on Exodus. And... Uh, yeah, I can see where they see an awful lot of different things about it. Uh, they've been joined by at least two people that are fluent in Hebrew, so they're looking at the Old Testament with some knowledge of Hebrew, but they're also terribly influenced by the orthodoxy of their own religious uh, groups, whatever religious groups those are. I know one of us at least considers himself uh, of a Pharisee uh, part. Now, when we say the word Pharisee, we think... You know, the Pharisees at the time of Jesus Christ, well, there were lots of different Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees actually sided with Christ, and but there was an Orthodox Pharisee. Originally, the Pharisees were the guys who were the most righteous and, and most defending of the Torah and the message of the Torah. But over just a few hundred years, or at least even actually over a generation, they moved from an understanding of the Torah to what the Essenes referred to as a fiction and a fraud. That they had gotten the Torah so mixed up, reading the same Hebrew that the Essenes were reading, that the Essenes referred to their interpretation of the Torah as a fiction and a fraud. And to be fair, the Torah lends itself to that fiction and fraud. Uh, interpretation because of the fact that the Torah is so steeped in metaphors and allegory and and symbolism that you can get it completely mixed up. But with the guidance of the Holy Spirit you can and, and listening to the Holy Spirit instead of all the other voices out there you can actually see in the message, especially if you add the New Testament, what the message is really all about. But I constantly see where these preconceived notions crop up. I saw several times just listening this morning uh, to, I guess it was in episode 13, where they, somebody asks a question and then people start to respond or distract from that question And you can see that some of the misconceived notions that people have about what was actually taking place at the time is is very confusing. 
and misleading and takes the conversation away from what is the probably one of the most essential uh, points of the message of Moses. It may not be really the most essential point, but it is it made essential by the fact that it is the one thing that most people do not get right. And I, I've come to the conclusion that the only reason that they cannot get it right is because they're doing it wrong. And so they cannot, they cannot see the correlation. And it was coming to my, uh, at least to my perception, if not to my knowledge, that uh, when the Israelites supposedly made the golden calf, Aaron actually produced this golden calf, although he didn't actually say that he made the golden calf. He just said he put the gold in and out came the golden calf as if there was no molding involved. It just, it just like created itself from the molten gold. Uh, he also, like we said before, he, he said that it wasn't his fault. Basically, that's what he's saying. He says, the people made me do it, and it was because you didn't come down on time, Moses. So he's blaming it on everybody else. And then he didn't just say, I made a golden calf. He said, it just came out, you know, like a, the, and they even pointed that out. They made that observation that, you know, the, it, when Johnny spills his milk at the table, all over the table, he, he doesn't say, I spilt my milk. He says, it just spilt. It just, it just fell over on its own. <laughs> no, you knocked it over because you can't sit still. But, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't admit that. So, which Johnny is a little kid, so we see the excuse. But the reality is, this is why they don't see it today. They they don't make the correlation or the connection with what that they are doing the dance of the people at the foot of Mount Sinai that they have made themselves naked they don't see that all the people are naked now actually we're actually seeing in society that there is more nakedness showing up that that is just a symptom of the true nakedness of our own hearts and minds that we do not see that we have made God's many. And those God's many are controlling our actions. They're even controlling our minds and our thoughts. And, you know, I mean, the people who listen to CNN and the, the different uh, news networks, they're, what they think is dependent upon what is said on that God... uh in our houses, that big square God we call a TV, is regulating our thoughts. We think what they are telling us to think. We are following them and their immoral, moral criteria. And it is actually shaping the way we think, shaping the way we act, shaping the way we function in the world. Now, at the same time, because we think a certain way, and then sometimes we uh, magnify the way we think by acting a certain way. This sets up patterns of thought in our own mind that bring us into subjection to actual spiritual forces. Now, you don't have to believe that if you don't want to, but that's actually what's taking place. And so, therefore, you will see patterns of behavior 
uh, even words that we use, images that we use, popping up that were ancient images in the past. Somebody who, that, that fellow who wrote the book, uh, The Harbinger, is now just come out. I think he's come out with another book, at least I've heard talk of it, that, where he's showing that a lot of the ancient symbols of the whole transgender movement and the symbols that go along with the LBGT and the rainbow and all this stuff are symbols that were used back in periods of time where civilization uh, enjoined itself with considerable corruption. And, and we see the same thing, you know, in the free bread of Rome. When the free bread of Rome has been the cause of the decline and fall of Rome. Because it was causing the decline and fall, literally degenerating the people into perfect savages. Which was prophesied by a historian 150 years before Christ. That when they became accustomed to eating at the expense or, or, or living at the expense of their neighbor and uh, develop this appetite for the, the benefits of this society that provided the benefits by the rule of force and violence. In other words, they're going to make you contribute. And if you don't contribute, they will violently throw you in jail and maybe... Uh, have a SWAT team come to your house and because you didn't contribute to the social safety net of society, to to paying off the debt of society. You're you're not paying your tally of bricks, and so they're going to forcibly, with rigor, force you to pay your tally of bricks. Well, that's that is the symptom of the fact that you've already rejected God, that you find yourself back in the bondage of Egypt, is because you had rejected God. God, the God, the Lord God, Yahweh, is a God of cause and effect. The, the entire universe is a matter of cause and effect. Everything, the spiritual aspect of the universe, the DNA aspect of the universe... You know, we talked briefly, just touched on the fact that Jordan Peterson pointed out that that DNA in the body can actually change. Now, a lot of people will say, no, that the DNA stays the same. It's very stable. Well, the, the double helix DNA is very stable. And, you know, reasonably so, considering how it minute the molecular patterns are. It's fairly stable. And it is a composite of both male and female origins of the individual and that is pretty stable but because of the fact that this mysterious genetic code is in there that different pieces of that genetic code they they found out through genetic splicing and everything else that it it may be more active and cause you to have blue eyes or cause you to have red hair or cause you to have because it's it's programmed into the genetic code. But they also know that there's a thing called epigenetics that is not in that double helix. And the epigenetics that is like a epigenetic or genetic soup in every cell of your body can actually cause certain uh, elements of that genetic code to be, be activated. That other things can operate on that 
double helix that will activate certain things. And the same molecular structure in the genetic code can actually account for more than one aspect of the individual. And that you can actually turn those different things on and off. And and this is what Jordan was alluding to is that studies where they're seeing that this the person may have the same genetic code, but they will actually, because of the way in which they live, they will pass on a, a, a genetic memory of what they were doing in this generation to the next generation. And, of course, that's what we see reference where it talks about God visiting, you know, upon the second, third, and fourth generation. Is that if you follow a certain pattern of behavior... If you uh, a pattern of thought, see, first it's usually a pattern of thought, and then the thought controls your behavior. But you can actually commit certain actions, and then that will alter your thought, and then it will alter your being, and will actually affect the next generation. So this is partly why the Israelites are wandering in the desert for 40 years, waiting for the first generation that had been in bondage, and he kept doing this backsliding, died off. And then a new generation would be born under this new system, and they would be altered by living according to the pattern laid down by Moses, which is symbolized in the tabernacle, and even symbolized in the garments of the priests. I mean, the same letters that form the word garment, the same root letters that form the word garment, also form the root to the word for treachery. Yeah, that's the same word. Treachery, garment. And now, if you knew the language, you would, you would know that. Especially if you read the language. If you if you just spoke it, you might not because they pronounce these words slightly different sometimes. But that's all come about because they needed to speak the language. Hebrew was originally written to be written. It was a written code. It was not meant to be pronounceable. So then they had to learn to ha- figure out some way of pronouncing it. But why... W- are so many words actually formed from the same root three letters. And is it consistent when they add a letter? I mean, they can add a lot of letters for a lot of different reasons. And when we look at the ancient language, we talked about this, uh, the Arcadian languages, some of them use the adding of extra letters simply or seemingly simply to add syntax to the word so that you see it in the sentence. Like if you're going to put the word and, like we would use the word and he did this, and he did that. They might put a vav at the beginning of the word and you could translate that vav into an and because that vav is a connecting letter. It connects with the previous idea. But then what what do you do when they put the vav in the middle of the word? Then is it divisionary? Well, it can be divisionary, but it can also be connective, too. Especially if they add another letter on the end, or at the beginning, even. 
And so we see that with lots and lots of the words where they are adding letters. We do the same thing in Greek when they, we take this word and that word and we put them together. And so we create a new idea with two other ideas brought together in the same word. Well, they're doing that, but on the, an alphabetical basis. So that's part of how the metaphors and symbolism is mixed into the language, which allows them to misinterpret it. Because it's, if it's a divinely inspired book, it is absolutely essential that you be divinely inspired to read it. And if you're not divinely inspired in one generation, you can get off track, completely off track. And and you can get more and more off track the more and more you get away from that divine spirit. The pattern that Moses is giving the people opens up their hearts and their minds to receiving that Holy Spirit to guide them in the world. It, it is the tree of life. It is the tree of light where it shows you the way that you may follow it. If you turn your back on that light, it will become dark for you. If you if you blot out that light, you won't see clearly. And like I say, in one generation, actually in a matter of very short period of time, what God has revealed to you can no to as actually be viscerated from your memory. And you will you will act as if you don't even have any recollection whatsoever of what has taken place. Now this can happen and it happens daily. And and you can see it to the extreme and like uh, physically to the extreme in people who have like Alzheimer's or dementia where they can't remember from moment to moment. You know, what are we going to do? Oh, we're going to do this. And then, and then a, a few minutes later, well, what are we going to do? And well, we're going to do this. And then you can actually take them and do that, spend the whole day doing it. They get home and they see the reminder on the board that they uh, are going to do Something and they said, "Oh my gosh, we didn't do it. We forgot to go and do it." No, we did do it. You all day. You were doing this. You you went and did every one of those things that are on the board. Oh, I can't remember doing it. I mean, obviously that's a problem that comes with age. It actually, comes with a lot of things. I, I heard an interesting data is that if a woman has uh, two male children gives birth to two male children, or carries two male children in her womb. She is has a higher percentage of not getting dementia and, and Alzheimer's. And, and they believe it is because some of the male cells of that ch- child get into her brain and continue to live, you know, probably, they're just kind of lodged in there. And they're surviving, and I guess they're reproducing. I don't know that they would be more than seven years old. Most cells don't live that long. But the presence of those male uh, cells and the little bit of hormones that they produce make it less likely that the woman will have dementia. More likely that she will have autoimmune problems, but less likely that she'll have dementia. Now, that's just a study. I thought it was interesting. But it's showing you that this... The epigenetics in your cells 
can have a tremendous effect on your genetics. And your genetics, of course, are going to get passed on down to the next generation. So the reality is, is that if you go down a certain path, you're going to start thinking a certain way. It's going to affect, you know, you all the way down to the very cells in your body. And you will not be able to see the truth, no matter how clearly it's explained. And we see that with these extreme situations, transgenderism, where people think they can make themselves, uh, you know, a woman thinks she can make herself a male with operations by cutting herself. Or that she can, that a guy thinks that he can make himself a female by cutting themselves. We hear that reference to you know, the the priests of these pagan religions actually cutting themselves uh, to to make something come about. You know, and that, you know, they're, they're going to make a potion. They're going to make, you know, th- this idea of witchcraft. You're going to change the cause and effect outcome of the world by doing something physically in the world. And to some degree, some slight degree, there's truth in that. But it will end badly every time because you're trying to overcome the reality of the existence of the pattern of creation, the the cause and effect of creation. You're trying to, through your own craftiness, through your own tree of knowledge, you're going to overcome the consequences of Wrong actions, actions that go against the law of nature. And what will happen is that it, you may alter the outcome in one place because of things that you did, but it's going to come back to haunt you. I mean, Shakespeare's plays of Macbeth, you know, that no, no man born of woman can kill Macbeth. That's the prophecy. And that he would be king and all this kind of stuff. And nobody will overcome uh, you or be able to defeat you till the forest of Dunsinane move to some other place. Well, of course, trees don't move. So he thought he was safe there. And all men are born of women. So he thought he was safe there. But it ends up that they actually cut down those trees and hid behind them to hide their troop movements. <laughs> and so he sees the trees moving across <laughs> The hill, and he thinks, oh my gosh, uh, that was in the prophecy. But still I'm safe, because no man born of woman can kill me. Until he finally ends up with a guy facing him, and the guy says, I was not born of woman. I was untimely ripped from my mother's corpse. So he wasn't born of a woman, he was born of a corpse, because she died, and they, she was heavy with child, and they, they opened her up and they delivered the baby without birth. So, this is, in those clever stories, this is, you're not going to get around this. So, we're going to explore some of those things that nobody's telling you. So that you can see the truth of what Moses is really telling you and how far you've gone from it. But we'll do that when we come back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, what is it that the 
they're missing, that so many other people are missing constantly in this uh, quest for the truth about what is written in the Bible and what is not written in the Bible and what did Moses really mean and what is idolatry and and all these different things that we see mentioned in, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. They talk about idolatry all the time. And, and it was interesting that... The, during their uh, 13th episode that they actually were kind of pointing out, it's not the fact that there was a golden statue of a calf or a bull, because there are golden statues that are actually used in the temple eventually as support of something, but nobody's worshipping them. So this is the key thing, is that they're, they're worshipping them. But then the question comes up, and, and I, so far I have not heard them completely address it. They're, again, they're going all around it. They're, they're really trying to explore this. But they're not understanding what worship is. Worship is a word that basically, you know, if we look at the Hebrew word for worship and we look at it from an actual physical perspective, it means to bow down which is symbolic of bowing down and serving. Bowing your will to that of the other. Not my will, but thine will. That, that is the essence of worshiping. Now that takes many different forms when we see them talking about bowing down uh, and serving. I mean, how do we serve God? I mean, what do, what do we have that God needs? Uh, does he need our praise? You know, we need to compliment God and say, God, you're really great all the time because God's pretty insecure unless he hears that we reconfirm that he is God. And this is what I, I see with a lot of the people that are talking about being transgender, that they know that they're a woman when they're actually a man because of all their friends say that they're a woman, they're like a woman, they're, they are a woman, and all these people because... And because so I know I'm a woman because of the affirmation that I get from all my friends and all the people that know me. But a person who really is a woman doesn't need that affirmation all the time. Now, admittedly, a lot of women do seem to need affirmation that they are loved. But the reality is, and it's a much healthier approach, is that that you love others, whether they love you or not. And this is a characteristic we see in Moses. And Moses is chided, he's mocked, he's disobeyed, he's, he, they do the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, they clamor against him, they have all these things where they're complaining. But when it comes down to it, and this is, they touch upon this, and certainly it's in the text, but a lot of people read it over and just miss it. Now, Moses actually says, when God is thinking about just starting over again, like the flood, you know, do, doing something where we're, we're just going to start over again, and I'll, I'll do it with you, Moses, instead of these people, because they're so stiff-necked. We've talked a little bit about what that stiff-neck meant. But he says... If you're, you're going to kill them, kill me. He actually let, is willing to lay down his life. Put an end to me if you're going to put an end to them. So he's willing to lay down his life for his fellow man. And 
That is the nature of Christ. No, no greater love hath a man than he is willing to lay down his life for his fellow man. You know, that that's an absolute essential characteristic. You know, John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Well, can you lay down your life even for, you know, people who aren't so friendly like the Israelites? They're not always so friendly with Moses. They give him a hard time. But Jesus, you know, back in John ten eleven, I, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. He, he actually runs out and faces the wolf, faces the bear like David uh, to protect the sheep. These these are symbolic, metaphoric, allegoric stories of the nature that we should all be putting on. And this is incorporated in the structure of the tabernacle. It's actually incorporated in the the garments of the priests. But if you don't understand the nature of that relationship of God and man and man and man, then you're not going to understand the symbolism. But once you understand uh, that nature, that true nature, that genetic nature, that spiritual genetic nature that man should be manifesting, then when you go back and look at the structure of the temple and know a little bit about the Hebrew language, you know, why blue threads, why linen, why brass and and uh, silver and copper, I mean, and uh, gold, why, why these different metals and where they're located, then it can start to make sense to you. But if we just try to go through and explain all the metaphors... I'm afraid that it would be just lead to more and more confusion. So anyway, why the golden calf? You know, about halfway through that episode, Jordan Peterson asked, why the golden calf? And we've touched on this over and over again. Uh, but he was interrupted by another question, and the question was somewhat valid. And they kind of edged their way back to this. But you can see, entering into the conversation, preconceived notions that seem to create a wall so that they cannot see over that wall. And there's a word that we may get to in this uh, show, wall. It's, it's translated wall, but it's translated a lot of other ways too. You'd be surprised how many other ways it is. But, and there's other Hebrew words that are translated wall. But I, I thought like wall. It's, it's actually the same letters are translated ox and bull. But they're also translated wall. So I, I went and looked at every place that that particular word is translated wall, which everywhere, you know, the concordance number is always translated wall. But the letters, like I say, can mean numerous other words. And uh, when we get to that section, we'll go through that. But what I found interesting is that when I looked up that word wall, it was always in reference in a, in the context of the verse where somebody is leaping over the wall, getting over the wall to the other side. There's a wall, but they're leaping over the wall. So every place that word is translated in a wall, they're leaping over the wall. And And... 
why are they having to leap over the wall? Because the wall is an obstacle that keeps you from understanding. And that's what I see is that your preconceived notions are often keep you from understanding the simplicity of the gospel. Which is to love God, which is a giver of life, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. That that really encompasses the whole thing. We can just say that and we can all go home. Except for the fact that, no, we can't. And one of the things that, like I was started to say, that I was beginning to realize is the Israelites did not realize that they were creating a false god and worshiping that god. And I I, I noticed it, you know, weeks ago when I was preparing for a previous, you know, I think it was chapter 32. I noticed it and I thought like, well, wait a minute. They're going to have a feast to Yahweh at the foot of this golden calf. They haven't abandoned Yahweh. But somehow or other, they're saying that they're worshipping this golden calf. Well, are they worshipping it? If they're having the feast to Yahweh, the Lord, but they got this golden calf there that they're, we're saying they're worshipping. Well, you don't get that unless you understand what worshipping is. You don't get that unless you understand what a God is. Because Yahweh actually talks about this in as we get into the verses uh, or chapter 34 and 35 cuz he's listing off his name but a name is not just a name a name is all the characteristics of the individual so why the golden calf that was jordan peterson's question well it's it's, it's really simple they were afraid that they they had won their battles against amalekites and malachites because Moses was there. They knew where to go because Moses was there. Moses went up and the rock poured out water. They're afraid that without Moses, Aaron ain't going to cut it. They're going to need something else to keep the people together. Because if we don't stay together, there's a lot of bad people out there. There's a lot of bad things can happen out there. There's a lot of, you know, things that we could, you know, food... We may not get. Hannah may not show up. Um, birds may not fly in so that we have meat to eat. We need Moses. Moses is our charismatic figure. You know, like Trump. Trump will save us. Moses will save us. But no, Moses is not going to save you. And it isn't Moses that saved them. Moses wasn't making all this happen. The God of cause and effect was making this happen. And he's trying to explain to you how it works. So, he was interrupted with a question about the earthly things, uh, the golden statue. Uh, but they missed why this was a bad deal. And they actually, when they went back and they, they were reading, to go back where they were reading about getting their wives and their children to break off their gold earrings to put into the golden calf. Well, then you have to ask, what do they mean, their gold earrings? And why are they just breaking it off the women and the children? And why do the children have golden earrings? And are they really earrings? Or are they just rings, you know, on a string? Uh, I mean, how many do they have in their ears? <laughs> well, the reality is, is a lot of times they had, the women and children carry the wealth. 
and uh, you know, like gold, uh, that, that which was the most condensed form of wealth that you would have. Now, they didn't, if you had a lot of gold, you're not putting them all in your wives' ears. But it was, if something happens to me, at least you got this. And, uh, and so it, it's a matter of protecting that wealth and passing it down to the next generation. But if you take up all that wealth that is the inheritance for the next generation and you put it in the golden calf, now your wealth is in the golden calf. This portable wealth that was in the hands of every family is now in the golden calf. And if you leave, you leave that behind. It's not going with you. Yeah, one guy can't carry that. So it was a way of binding the people together. And, and Proverbs talks about that as one purse. All their gold, which was used to be in their purse, their silver still may be in their purse. Their brass or bronze may still be in their purse. But the gold is over there in the calf. At least the stuff that was held by their wives and their children for their inheritance is now in the golden calf. But now they will stick to defend the golden calf. Their actions to stick and stay and fight this day or that day is determined by the golden calf. The judgment to stay and defend my neighbor, to defend my my neighbor on my left and my neighbor on my right, is now, the motivator to that is now in the golden calf. It's not in my neighbor. And so that act of creating the golden calf would eventually lead to dividing the people. That there's more that you could do to divide the people, and that's the arts of the temple, but they've started already with a central bank. And, you know, was there an issuance of something saying that you put in this much and you put in that much and now we'll use this as as if it was gold within the camp? You, you can't spin the gold out of the camp. And we give you, a, a, in countless city-states and the Spartans, you couldn't own gold if you were in Sparta. As a matter of fact, they made their money money out of lead. You know, and they stamped lead coins with a value and then people spent that amongst themselves. It didn't have any value anywhere else. But it kept all the Spartans and all the people in Sparta, most of the people in Sparta weren't Spartans. They were the ones that were doing all the work. It kept them loyal. Which is why we have people, supposedly Adolf Hitler said, gold in the hands of the people is the enemy of the state. And he's talking about the central state, the city state. And so, what Moses was doing, or Aaron was doing, was taking the gold out of the hands of the people, out of the purses of the people, and putting it in this central vault, this golden calf. And now, that was going to control the decision-making of the people. And that pattern of thought, not looking to compassion for my neighbor... They're, they're not going to be listening to their neighbors much. They're going to say, see, the golden calf is going to distract them. They're going to protect that. And we do the same things with our doctrines. Our preconceived doctrines. That is our salvation. We, have, we don't want to let go of our preconceived doctrines. And the reality is we worship our doctrines. 
we we worship our catechisms, our denominational theology. It has to, whatever we think, has to agree with that. Or we're disloyal to the gods of our doctrine. The doctrine that is our God. And we have to be willing to set that down and look at all things new. And the golden calf is just an example of that. They did not realize that they were giving up their power of choice. Now now they were going to stay to defend their neighbor, not because of their neighbor or their love for their neighbor, but because their wealth was in the golden calf. And this was taking them down the wrong path. It didn't take it very far, but they had to turn around and do something completely different. <laughs> they were creating this one person that runs towards evil. And nobody seems to get that. Idolatry is covetousness. And covetousness is idolatry. Okay, where do, how do we know that? Well, Colossians 3, 5. We've read this before. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, is it just covetousness that is idolatry? Or fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection. We're going to see that idea of fornication, or at least whoredom, in reference to national whoredom, which has to do with making covenants with other people, and sitting down and eating the product of that covenant with other people, where you bind yourselves, actually with a contract, with a social contract, to the authority of other people who can provide you with the dainties of that contractual system. And that's considered whoredom, which is idolatry. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection towards what? To the golden statue? You, you want to protect the golden statue? You want to protect your doctrine? You want to protect your theology? That's an inordinate affection for something that is not necessarily God. It's out of your own imagination or the imagination of other theologians. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. What is the wrath of God? The consequences. The cause and effect. The consequences of going against the way of God. But if you don't know the way of God, you may not know you're going against the way of God. And to some degree, these people didn't realize how much they were going against the way of God by creating that central bank. That golden statue, that Fort Knox of a calf. Where the money was no longer in their pocket. They had something in their pocket, but it wasn't a value. They They didn't realize that they were... The children of disobedience. Just like the people today who keep skirting around the fact that they are all the children of disobedience. They've, they've made gods of some... It's, they're not standing with their neighbor, which is why somebody could come in and say, everybody has to wear masks. <laughs> everybody has to get an unknown toxin injected into their blood system and into their children's blood system. And they could get away with it. People could complain. Well, I don't want to shut down my business. I don't want to wear a mask. And 
and the whole nation just goes after you. Because they don't love one another. They're not in the business of loving one another. They're in the business of going along to get along or to be more comfortable. You know, and some tried to stand up and some did stand up a little bit, but the whole nation is still going down the river. You know, you got a hold of the raft, great, but it's still going over the falls. You, you even got on the raft and you stood up like you were on a surfboard and you think like, ah, hey, standing up, they're not making me lay down. But you're still headed for the, the falls. When the whole falls goes, everybody goes. Ephesians 5, 5. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, because idolatry is covetousness, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The kingdom of the anointed and of God. Whoremonger. You're not a whoremonger, right? I mean, you don't go out with prostitutes and all that kind of stuff, I assume. Okay, maybe you don't. But maybe you're still a whoremonger. Because as we're going to see, the whoremonger isn't just somebody who has sexual intercourse with somebody outside of marriage. A whoremonger is somebody who makes a contract with the people, covenant with the people, so they can sit down and eat the dainties offered by that contract. You're not supposed to eat that. We're going to see them say that. Are you going to be able to make that connection? 1 Corinthians 5.10 Yet not to altogether with the fornicators of the world. They're fornicating with the world. With the constitutional orders and systems of government. Because they practice public religion. Civil religion. Where they go to the civil magistrates or their bureaucracy to obtain their free bread. Their welfare. Their social safety net. Going back to earlier shows with uh, Jordan Peterson and them. This, uh, Jonathan says, well, they had, they had to have slavery then because they had no social safety net. Egypt was their social safety net. You promise to give 20% of your labor to the Pharaoh and we will give you free bread. <laughs> That's the social safety net. And it was run through the temples because the temples were full of grain. Even, even the movie Moses. I remember it way back when I was a little kid. When it was first in the Santa Rosa Theater. The movie Ten Commandments. Where Moses is up there building his new city for the Pharaoh. And, and the, the people are hungry. And they're weak. And, uh, and uh, he, he says they have no grain. And so he asks if there's any grain stored in Goshen. And uh, they said in the temple. And so he's going to send them to the temple to get the grain stored in the temple. That was right there in the movie. They're storing grain, in, but it's for the gods. But the grain wasn't there for the gods. It was dedicated to the gods. It was consecrated to the gods. But it was there to take care of the needy of society. And he's saying, these guys are in need. I'm taking the grain. You know, I mean, the early church of Constantine, several of the bishops 
got censured and even exiled by Constantine and, and subsequent emperors because they arbitrarily withheld grain shipments to places like Milan and Constantinople uh, because the people did not accept their new imposed doctrine and theology. Now, these were the bishops of Constantine. These were not really the bishops of the church. Uh, because they were saying that if you don't believe this, we're going to withhold grain from you. And they got into trouble with the emperor, who was the head of that church that was created by Constantine. Now, that wasn't, that wasn't Christianity. Most of the bishops of Christian, Christianity didn't go anywhere near the Council of Milan. So, it certainly wasn't a consensus. Like 319 supposedly showed up. I'm not even sure they were all bishops. Some of them may have been. They had a custom of traveling in twos. So it may have only been about 150 bishops. But I don't know. It would go with the big number. 319 showed up. And they're making all these decisions for all the other Christians. We know, as a matter of record, that there were over 1,200 known bishops. They were all ordered by Constantine to come to this Council of Milan. But only 319 showed up. That's not a quorum. And that they're making decisions that forever control the destiny <laughs> of, uh, of Christianity. But not real Christianity, fake Christianity. But we'll have to talk more about this when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom after another brief break. So be right back and maybe I'll have that quote for you. <laughs> Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And so I, I told you I'd try to recall that. Uh, I, I had it kind of right in my mind, but I just didn't want to screw it up. But it's, it's that scene uh, where supposedly Ramesses, which of course wasn't really Ramesses at that particular time, but it's part of the folklore around the story of Moses, that he's he's looking for some source of grain in Goshen, and, and so... He finds out there's grain at the temple, and and Ramesses says, "I don't have to remind you, Moses. The temple grain is for the gods." And Moses says, and it stuck out of my head. I always remembered it. Uh, I just didn't want to screw it up. What the gods can digest will not sour in the belly of the uh, of the slave. And I actually think it originally said cannot digest. <laughs> Will not sour in the belly of a uh, of a slave, but uh, that was because two things: grain was a commodity, money it had value. You could ship it anywhere, and it would bring back gold and silver to you. People would come from all over. That was the habit of coming to Egypt, and and it would store for a long time. So they had these big granaries, and the temple was in charge because the temples were the social safety net of society. Because religion was how you took care of the needy of society. It was how you performed your pious duty to God and your fellow man by loving your neighbor as yourself. You see the connection? It's all just, it's right there in front of you. That you don't love your neighbor because you have an emotional feeling about your neighbor while you're sitting in the pew. You love your neighbor because... You actually are willing to sacrifice for his well-being. 
Now, if he has a, a food need, a clothing need, a housing need, you're going to sacrifice for him, but you're not going to boil a kid in its mother's milk. Now, I just threw that in there. That's a verse that's going to come up again. Because if you just give to your neighbor, I don't have a house. Give me a house. Okay, here's a house. I don't have any food, so give me food. And so you just give him food. Uh, I don't have any clothes, so give me clothes. And so you just give him clothes. You can just give him whatever. He just keeps asking and asking and asking. He doesn't do any work. He, he, you know, he's still shooting drugs and drinking booze. He's not taking care of his family. And, and you're boiling him in the milk of human kindness. You're, you're not putting any kind of restriction saying, look, you got to get your act together. I'm not just going to keep giving you stuff and make you weaker and weaker like they did in Sodom. In a time of affluence, they weakened the poor with their boiling a kid in its mother's milk. With this milk of human kindness with no balance of morality in that process. Because that's going to lead to destruction. It's going to lead to tyranny. And eventually, it will lead to the unrighteous mammon and everything will fail. I mean, that's just, that's what they're talking about in the Bible. But people don't see it because they're doing it. That's what they're doing. And they don't want to see that they they have an appetite for benefits at the expense of their neighbor, which is the antithesis of the kingdom of God. It's the reverse of the kingdom of God. And it's going to affect the way you think. It's going to affect the way you act. It's going to affect you all the way down to the core of your being. To the, the very cellular structure of your body. And therefore it's going to affect the next generation. And it has. Which is why you see the generation before you. Yeah, they're teaching you all kinds of your kids all kinds of stuff in school. Yeah, they're teaching you uh, your kids all kinds of stuff in colleges and everything, and all this woke stuff, and and that's having an effect. But there's an actual current of iniquity flowing through your society, through your mind, because you've accepted certain ideas as true that just ain't so, and that's what's getting everybody into trouble. And uh, we, we talked about it before. The Levites supposedly killed 3,000 people. It was very interesting, their conversation. But we'll save that because now we're into the second hour and we want to actually get through uh, the, the chapter 34, which is the next chapter that we're doing. But I, I, I give you a prelude at the beginning of each of these chapters so that you we set the scene. The scene was that people were in the bondage of Egypt where 20% of their labor belonged to the government and their land didn't really belong to them. Their animals didn't really belong to them. And God comes along and arranges it so that they... Here's their cry. A very important. That God hears their cry. Just like you're supposed to hear the cry of your neighbor. And he comes to their aid. Now, everybody wasn't doing it right. All those people that left weren't doing it right. He wasn't hearing all their cries. But amongst them, he heard some of their cries. And he heard the prayers of Moses. Moses knew the people more than most people think. 
based on what I see in that symposium. But uh, he knew them and they knew him, but uh, they did not know God. But Moses didn't really know God as well as he was going to know God. And so we see the process in Moses' life where he goes out, becomes a shepherd, uh, evidently a fairly powerful man in this other culture, and he learns so much, And but then he sees a sight that he will not turn back from. He sees a light on the desert that he will not turn back from. And he goes and he faces that light. Other people would not be able to do that. Adam couldn't do it. But Moses did it. And this brought him to another level and another level and another level. So we're, we've given you a lot of information. Now we're giving you some more information. Are you willing to go to the next level? Are you willing to continue to see the light? Because as you see the light, you'll see how wrong you have been. But you have to do that in order to repent. And repentance is required. And repentance is thinking another way. And so we're going to look at a lot of things that keep showing us back to this same way that we should be thinking, but haven't been thinking. We can blame it on FDR, and we can blame it on LBJ, and we can blame it on Cloward and Piven, but they were just instruments in our own appetite and and our own sloth. Because we used to take care of all the social welfare in America through faith, hope, and charity to associations with no legal charity. Even all the way back to the days of Davy Crockett, and we have an article on that. Read that article. But that changed. And within a generation, we could not see the truth anymore. We, we had Alzheimer's when it came to the truth. We, we don't even know. Everybody must have been starving and dying in the streets. There must have been homeless people everywhere in America back then when there was no... Gavin Newsom's social welfare uh, going to end homelessness. But they did end homelessness. There was almost, there was very little homelessness. Ah, there were a few people around, surely. You know, Huck Finn's dad. (laughs) As an example. But he was an alcoholic and he chose to be an alcoholic and he liked being an alcoholic. And so there wasn't too much you could do about that. But those people who straightened up, you know, they became strong enough to make a strong nation. But you killed that with the institution of legal charity. Legal charity is at the root of the problem. But the problem is the fact that we don't want to see it. We want to hide from the light. So, chapter 34 of Exodus. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tablets of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tablets the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. He sets the scene. First, first verse. And be ready in the morning and come up in the morning unto the Mount Sinai and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. Present thyself. And no man shall come up with thee. No man. Nobody's coming up with you this time. Not halfway up. No, nobody's coming up with you. Neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount. Nobody, they can't even get on the mount. Not even the flocks. The flocks can't even come up on the mount. Now I've seen that mount in this day and age and I don't see what the flocks would be even eating. <laughs> it's pretty desolate in these days. But 
climate change, you know how that is. Neither let the flocks nor the herds feed before that mount. So they, they can't even come near it. So, verse 4. And he hewed two tables of stone, like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tables. Tables of stone. They call them tables of stone. It translates out. That they're, you know, looks like a, a plaque. Table of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood. That means made himself in the presence. Like the other word. With him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the word Lord there is Yahweh. He, so, his presence is actually, I mean, proclaim means like to call out, to manifest his name, his character, which is the character of the Lord. So, again, he's setting the scene with that verse for the next verse. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. His presence, again, is proclaiming, calling out the character of his name. The Lord... Yahweh, the Yahweh, the Lord God. So he's repeated himself there. So he's saying the Lord God, but the word God there means ruling judge. And there are God's many. There could be all kinds of ruling judges. The golden calf became a ruling judge of the conscience of the people. It kept the people loyal to defend the camp because their gold was in this statue and they couldn't carried away with them. So now their loyalty was, the choice to be loyal was now melted into the golden calf. It was creating an X amount of loyalty to the camp because that's where their gold was. That's where their heart was. Isn't that what Jesus is talking about? But there, where a man's treasure is, so there is his heart. And so their heart was in the statue, not in their fellow man. So they weren't loving their fellow man as much as they were before. Now part of their love is for the statue. And that's what we call worshiping. Because now that statue is determining their choices. That one purse is determining their choices. Their loyalty is determined by that. To some degree. They can still... And this is why it's a gradual encroachment upon... The way you think. But he says, he is the Lord. This is his name. This is what he's proclaiming with his presence. That he is the Lord. But he is also the Lord ruling judge. He is also merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. So this is this is what he is. He's explaining this characteristic of himself in this presence. His presence is proclaiming this. So when they say merciful, what are they talking about? Merciful is it's translated from rakum, which as a mean of compassion, he is compassionate. By his nature, he is compassionate. Which is actually from the word rakum, which means love. Or love deeply. It specifically means more than just love. It means to love deeply. So by his nature, he loves. But now you've got to remember that the, 
God's love is not necessarily the same as your love. You know, my my cat loves birds. He just loves birds. He loves them to death. <laughs> uh, he would even boil a kid in his mother's milk because I mean, that's the kind of love he has. Because he just he just absolutely fascinated with birds. But he'll eat them. He'll kill them. But that's not the kind of love that God has. It's this deeper love that they actually define the word as, you know, loves deeply. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Ben Shapiro said is that people say that they love everybody equally. They're just, he says they're full of, I think he said full of crap. I don't remember exactly. But they're full of it anyway, he says. But uh, I, I have often said, you don't love anybody more than the person you love the least. And, and people find that hard to say. But I'm using the word love there in the sense of God's love. God's love is like light. It shines out in every direction. It shines out everywhere. We block it. We put up the wall to stop it. We do that. We have the choice to do that. It's it's a bad choice, but we have the choice to do that. We don't want to see. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear. How many people say that? That's that. That's a pattern where they don't want to see. But the merciful love of God is that it shines everywhere equally. It shines on your enemy. It shines on you. Now, he will withhold some of that out of mercy. Because if you got all the love of God, it would just burn you up. And just like hot coals, when you love your enemy, it's like hot coals on his head. It would burn burn him up. You couldn't you couldn't take that much truth. You can't handle the truth. But God's nature just manifests that kind of love in every direction all the time, and He withholds some of it out of love, out of that love, because He knows you can't handle the whole truth. But we also have this other word, gracious, uh, which is translated from, uh, ch- well, it's uh, chet, nun, vav, nun. said to mean gracious, anyway. Uh, but it could mean to show favor. But God is respecter of no man, so that's not really what gracious means. It means that that he's not going to hold a grudge, although now... You, you'll see other translations that may make that God is a jealous God, that he is going to hold a grudge, hold it against you. But uh, that's not really what it means. It, it He has compassion, which is back to mercy, and he has pity. And he will show favor. But he's a cause and effect God. And, and you're going to see this coming out in the conversation with Moses and God. It also says that he's long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. He's so abundant in truth, you can't handle the whole truth. It's so abundant in goodness. What we often think of as the wrath of God is simply the goodness of God coming when you've rejected the goodness of God towards your fellow man for years and years and years. It is the consequences of that rejection where you want to just, you know, this makes me comfortable. This makes me feel good. This, you find this amongst a lot of the atheists that, that they're, they're self-serving. They will serve others when it benefits them, but they won't serve others when it doesn't benefit them. Moses was willing to serve the people even unto death. 
How many of you are willing to do that? So, he's talking about his nature. And it says he keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. And that will be no means clear. And then they have the word there, the guilty. But that's actually added by the translators. That's not in the original text. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children until the third and fourth generation. So wait a minute. He just said he's keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity, but then he's visiting this iniquity upon the children for four generations. Well, that's actually mercy. He's visiting it upon them. And then you can you can look up that word visiting and find out what do you mean visiting? <laughs> it's paquad is the word. And yeah, it's it's translated number a hundred and nineteen times. So there's an accounting is what he's saying. And it visit it's translated of some form of visit, you know, fifty nine times. But it's also translated punish thirty one times. So number, visit, punish, appoint, commit, miss, set, charge, govern, lack, oversight, officers, all, all translated from that single word. Now occasionally there's extra letters added that might lean the definition, but the reality is it means to attend to, to muster, to reckon with. So yeah, what you're fathers did will be visited upon you and you get to reckon with it. But in that reckoning you become stronger. In dealing with the sins of your father, which begins with forgiving your father, you become stronger and stronger and stronger. And it leads you to the ways of God and the ways of righteousness. And so yeah, it's visited upon those four generations But then in verse 8, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And of course, the word worship there means bowed their head. So it seems rather redundant. But he is, is admitting, accepting the will of God. And it goes on to say, And he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. So he's pleading again for the people. And, And he understands that God is a merciful, but also in order to be merciful... You have to hold people accountable. Otherwise, you weaken them. Back to that milk and meat thing. That if you just say, oh yeah, I forgive you, you don't have to pay me anything. And No, no. yeah, I forgive you. He says, well, I'll pay you back. Okay, I'd like to see that happen. Because it's good that he pays that back. You know, reminds me of the story with my son. I gave him a BB gun when he was real young, my oldest son. And I said, I'm giving you this BB gun, but you have to be responsible with it. And the first window you break, I will pay for because I was foolish enough to give you this BB gun when you're this young. But the second window you break, that's going to be on you. 
So there's your mercy and accountability. I'm going to visit the second window on you. You're going to pay for that window. And I make it real clear. I mean, I sit down face to face and I'm looking him right in the eye and I'm explaining this and watching to see if he's hearing me, everything. And the first window was an old barn building window. He shot it out and I had another one just like it and popped it in in two minutes. The second window was the truck window. (laughs) And he paid for it. He still remembers that story to this day. <laughs> Hopefully he got a lesson out of it. We have to be that way. The, the, the system of social welfare, the social safety net that all the people that on that symposium are living under and are a part of doesn't take that into account. They, they're boiling the minds of their children in milk. They're making life too easy for them. They're not holding them accountable. They're not visiting the responsibility of what they do this year on the next year. You know? And they have to do it. That, that's a part of the, that. It's not love. It's not the love of God if you're not doing it. If you're spoiling your children. If you're spoiling your neighbor. You have to hold them accountable. You can do that in love too. But you have to do that. And now Moses is pleading for the people. And and it goes on to say, And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art, shall see the work of the Lord, Yahweh, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. So, he says a terrible thing. This monumental thing that he's going to do with them. He's going to perform these things and show them. What he's going to do is speed up. He's long-suffering, but he's going to speed up the cause and effect so that you can see the, the accountability really quick. And how it works. He says, Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. All of which have meaning which we won't go into at this time. Take heed to thyself lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whether thou goest lest it be a snare in the midst of thee. So he's saying something's going to be in a snare if you make a covenant with the inhabitants where you go. So you make a a social contract with the inhabitants where you go. Not with their God, just with the inhabitants of the land where thou goest. Don't do that, lest it become a snare. And Paul talks about a snare. David talks about a snare. David says, what should have been for your welfare has become a snare. This is what they're talking about. Same word, snare. The same word in the Hebrew, a snare. And and David. And Paul quotes David and makes reference to that same snare. That table that is a snare. But he shall destroy, but ye shall destroy their altars. Yeah, the word destroy there, overthrow. You're, just like 
Jesus overthrew the tables in the temple because those tables in the temple were a snare and a trap because they were a part of the welfare system of the temple. And you can go read our article on money changers and find out why that is. And of course, you're, everywhere you have a bank, you're going to have money changers and the temple was a bank. Just like the temples in Egypt were a bank. But Jesus is saying, no, you don't want your treasure in the temple. That's not what it's for. Because where your treasure is, there will be your heart. Jesus is not impressed with the temple. He wants you to have your treasure and your neighbor. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we're looking in this verse 12 of chapter 34 of Exodus. And it says, Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant, make an agreement, make a social contract with the inhabitants of the land wherever thou goest, lest it be a snare. And of course, it is their tables that become a snare. It is what should have been for their welfare that becomes a snare. It is their legal charity. I mean, that's how they got into the bondage of Egypt. The, but they were they were in a situation where they had no food. They had to do something. They were going to starve out there in the wilderness. And they were brought into bondage. Now, were they brought into bondage because of the of the famine? Was that why they were brought into bondage? What does it say? What does Reuben say? It's because we would not hear the cries, the anguish of our brother. That this has come upon us. So, why are you in a snare today? Why are you back where you are collateral for debt and merchandise in your own nations? You know, you may have a job at a college, but that can go away overnight. <laughs> you, you, you may have, you know, reputation and everything, but what is that? That's invisible. That can disappear. You can be canceled in a moment. But you're snared in a system of statutory bondage that is altering the way you think you're back in the bondage of Egypt. And unless you admit that and see that, you're not going to find the solution. And the solution is you have to start hearing the cries of your brother. The anguish of your brother. The difficulty of your brother. They're shutting down his ma- his business because he didn't wear a mask. He didn't make all these people wear a mask. You're going to shut down your business. They were th- these people were. You see them everywhere during the so-called pandemic. You're going to see more of them when there's real problems. When the bank closes down, and more problems than that, more problems than you can even imagine. But it, you, there's time to repent, but there's just enough time to repent. So the snare is, you are in the snare because you did not hear the cries of your brothers and because you made your golden calf and you put your wealth, you know, cast it into the civic structures of society and now you're in a world of hurt. So, it's, so what does it say in verse 13? But, you shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. Is this like the Levites going in and killing 3,000 people, which did not happen? Go look up our, you know, Levite Smite article. And and see what that was really going on there. Because that's not what was happening. 
destroy their altars. The same word, destroy, which is basically shin, be it, rash. That same word is translated hope. <laughs> hope? Hope? How could you? She had been, uh, be it, resh is translated hope. Yeah, but it's given a different Strong's number. 7663 it's given. And it's translated hope and wait. As in, you know, hold back. You know, examine. It actually means even examine. Hope, examine. You know, and so, I mean, I'm just reading right out of the concordance. I'm not making it up. So, Shannon Bit Resh is also with another Strong's number, is translated hope twice. And the same letter, Shit Bin Resh, uh, with another Strong's number, is translated break. And uh, sometimes destroy. Are breaking pieces, and you have to go look at all the different uses in the, of of where that word shows up to find out. You know, wreck, cripple, maim their altars. Well, you know what maims their altar? Don't sign up for their altar. <laughs> Point out the fallacy of their altar, the foolishness of their altar. Best yet done is to create the altars of God, of unhewn stones, which we've already talked about. You have to go back and listen to the shows if you're not getting what we're talking about. But, yeah, 7666, Strong's number. Uh, the same word, uh, Shin, uh, Biet, Resh, is translated to buy or purchase grain. <laughs> That's actually, same word, same word. Now, occasionally they'll add different letters like we explained, but that's the same root word is the same root word. And it also, it has other strong numbers, 7667, breaking, fracture, crushing, uh, you know, so it can mean that. But you will crush their altars by exposing them. By examining them, showing people what is the result of creating these altars, these legal charity altars that require you to make a covenant with the gods of those altars, the ruling judges of those altars. So then, in that process of exposing it, you will be breaking their images. (laughs) You will be cutting down their groves. Groves were... They used to have sacred space and they'd take a spot where trees were the biggest and tallest and everything and that would be a sacred grove and that would be their, that would be their temple. Because originally temples, all temples were places and that's one of the reasons why the tabernacle, which was symbolic, it moved about. It was mobile. That was very, very significant. It wasn't attached to a grove of trees. It wasn't attached to a stone building. But it was mobile. And it could move about. And so, anyway, that's what they're talking about there. I hope you get a little bit better picture. In verse 14, For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So if you have a a building and there's a treasury in it, even though you don't melt it down into a golden cap, but that's where you put your wealth. That's also where you put your trust. That's where you, you know, like I'm counting on this Social Security, I'm counting on these welfare benefits that to save me to to be my salvation. 
That's where your heart's going to be. You're going to defend that right down to your very death. Even though it is killing you. It is destroying your society. It is degenerating the masses of the people and making them perfect savages where there's Karens and Kins everywhere screaming and yelling. Like, what was that girl swimmer who was beat out by a guy who suddenly said he was a girl and they let him get away with it? That's insane. That's absolutely crazy. But that's just the tip of the iceberg you have created. But she goes and speaks and is willing for confrontation, willing to talk to people and challenge them on their ideas. And they just assaulted her. And, and they made excuses for it. And, 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 you know, the, the administration, you know, we have it on film, the trying to kill her and, and hitting her and punching her. And the, the head of the university is praising the demonstrators in their peaceful <laughs> demonstrations. Well, no, they weren't peaceful. They were violent and everything. Amazing. Just absolutely amazing. But they're perfect savages. They've been made perfect savages by a hundred years of legal charity, including your public education, including Social Security, which is almost a hundred years now, including your great society and your new deals, which have come about because you've been whoring after other gods. And that's what it says in in verse... uh, well, let's, let's go 14. For thou shalt worship no other God, no other ruling judge. For the Lord, Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In other words, you can't play both mammon and unrighteous mammon. you you got to go one way or the other. And of course you can do that if you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start creating the alternative which is what Christ was bringing you, is the alternative to bondage, is the, is the alternative of righteousness. Verse 15, Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, pay in, what is today? April 15th. <laughs> This show is being recorded on April 15th, where everybody is sacrificing to the ruling judges of their temples. And and if you owe, you should pay. I'm not saying don't pay. I'm saying, I'm just telling you where you're at. And that's what the symposium is not willing to see, is that you guys are in the bondage of Egypt, and it's having a psychological effect on your mind. And your bodies, and it's destroying you. If you want to see the great works of God, you have to follow the ways of God. Because that's what he's saying up there at the beginning. That you have to observe what I am commanding you this day. And you're not doing that. I'm sorry to tell you. You've been whoring after other gods. And you're sacrificing to those gods. And one called thee... And thou eat of his sacrifice. Because when you eat of his sacrifice, you become merchandise. You consummate the agreement. Especially since everything they give you is the result of borrowing against the future, which is also a violation of the Sabbath. Because you didn't work for it first. You borrowed, you know, against the future. Not only your future, 
But now because you borrowed so much, even the future of your children. So you've cursed your children with debt. Because you don't understand, and these guys aren't telling you what Moses is really talking about, which is what Jesus was really talking about. And thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods. Isn't that what we see? Feminism? And make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods as well. Because they have to be safe. And their social safety net is not the church anymore. That's not where you're going to go. You're going to go down to the temples of governments. Of men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over the other. Something that Jesus said was not to be the way with you. It's right there in the text. Over and over again. You know, it's amazing how many ministers can't tell you where that text is. And I've showed it to them. They said, oh, that benefactor, that doesn't mean that they give you benefits. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it means they give you benefits. That's why they call them benefactors. And how do they get those benefits? They take away from your neighbor. Because you don't love your neighbor. You love your benefits. So you're not coming to the aid of your neighbor. You're going to end up, and we'll see this eventually if we get to it. Let's get through these verses. 18, the feast of unleavened bread shalt thou keep seven days. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread as I commanded thee in the time of the month of Abed. Abed, interesting. For in the month of Abed thou camest out from Egypt. All that openeth the matrix is mine, and every firstling amongst thy cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is male. So, okay, unleavened bread, again, isn't about yeast. It's about cruelty. You're getting your bread by forcing other people to contribute. That's the way it started. Now you're just borrowing everything against the future. Although, when it started in America, the government was in debt. And they needed more collateral. And so they offered you to be the collateral of Egypt. Oh, I mean the United States. The collateral of Pharaoh. Oh, no, I meant the federal government. (laughs) So, get the picture. And now he says in 19, everything that opens the matrix, every firstling amongst thy cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is male. That's an interesting conversation we won't have right now. But... That's to go to God. Now, is that like the grain that is in the temple in Egypt? That's to go to God? What's that for? Is this guy going to eat that? Yeah, We're going to burn it up and give it to God because then he'll smell the smoke and he knows that we gave it to God. No. That's your social safety net. That's a flow that's going to come in every time there's a harvest, every time there's a lambing, every time there's first male oxen. That's going to charge... Your social safety net. So that funds are constantly coming in. Meat is constantly coming in. Very keto. 20. But the firstlings of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. Why? Because we're not going to eat the ass. The donkey. Because he doesn't have the right hooves. (laughs) Because he's not... We don't breed them to eat. We breed them for beasts of burden. So what, what does... What does the the temple have to do with that? They don't need that. 
you can they might need a couple so maybe you can give a couple but the the reality is is they they're going to need meat to feed to the needy of society and put them on keto diet cuz that'll be better for them <laughs> all that grain they had in Egypt all those carbs you know i don't know but i do know this that firstling is supercharging their social safety net they're not just burning those things up. They had flocks. The, the Levites had flocks on the common ground, which is another explanation we've talked about before. All the firstborn of thy sons thou shalt redeem. So, if you your firstborn son that opens the matrix, uh, you've got to give a lamb to redeem him. That may, they don't want your son necessarily. Maybe you, your son wants to become a Levite and you could... You let somebody else adopt them. But uh, the point is, is this is supercharging their social safety net. And none shall appear before me empty. Everybody's going to bring something at their feast. This is very important. Everybody's going to contribute to this. But it's free will choices, which we'll go into. Six days shalt thou work, but on the seventh day thou shalt rest in earring time. And in harvest thou shalt rest. Again, you're not keeping the Sabbath if you don't work first. If you're borrowing against the future, which you're doing in every nation of the world today, none of them are keeping the Sabbath. I don't care if it's Saturday or Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or the seventh day for the accounting for the moon or whatever. That doesn't have anything to do with it. It's about debt. Uh, because debt makes gods of other men who hold the note. They hold your life. 22. And thou shalt observe the feasts of weeks and the first uh, fruits of wheat harvest and the feasts of ingathering at the year's end where nobody is supposed to show up empty. Because you're supercharging your social safety net with these feasts. That these are extra events. I mean, you take care of a lot of things locally, but you take care of more. And then we'll get to wave offering. What the heck is a wave offering? I don't. I haven't heard anybody get that right. But verse twenty-four: For I will cast out nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. So, God's going to actually create protection by the cause and effect of doing this. But it's important that we do it as a nation, as a, as, as a network of people that are binding ourselves together with love and charity, because charity is love, and covetousness is idolatry. Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, with cruelty, Neither shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover be left unto the morning. We're not going to store up all kinds of stuff. And we're going to really work at making sure everybody is taken care of. Everybody that we invite into our house. Who comes in under the blood of the Lamb. Under the way of Christ. The ones who don't want to live according to the way of the Christ like the the 3,000 that the Levites barred at the gate, which is, go read the article, we show you that that's actually what they did. They didn't kill them. 
There wasn't, it wasn't blood letting all over the place. They weren't dead. But they probably were going to die because they were on their own. Those 3,000 were going to have to face the Amalek and the Moses ain't going to be up on the hill. When the manna doesn't show up for them, they're still out. Because only those who are willing to consecrate themselves, dedicate themselves to this other system, something that people at that forum have not yet done. They're dedicated to another system of legal charity. And they, they have need of repentance. 26. And the first of the, and the first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring unto the house of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not seethe a kid, boil a kid in his mother's milk. And I have another article there. We, if we have time, maybe we'll go to it in the afternoon. Milk and meat. They add this to the food law. Has nothing to do with food laws. Has nothing to do whether your meat fork touches the butter or the sour cream or any of that stuff. You can still have sour cream on your steak. That's <laughs> okay. Uh, the, there's no. If you create a ritual out of that, you miss the whole thing. But we've talked about that a little bit, and we'll talk about it more. Is that you need? Because he's talking here all about the social safety net. He's talking about the welfare system of God. And then he adds in, thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. He's not going to spoil the kid with the milk of human kindness and not have the meat issue. Now, if you are, there's a whole explanation of this. We won't go into it here. I'll save that. You just have to listen. Maybe we'll get to it in the afternoon show. And the Lord said unto Moses, write thou these words. For after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And Israel is the ones who contend with this covenant. And there could be a lot of people there that are not really contending. They're saying, yeah, we agree. We consent. I agree with you 100%, Moses. But they don't really agree. And and God knows that. Because you, you, you all have finite minds. And so... That's why he has to be long-suffering with your stiff-neckedness. But anyway, verse 28. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and he did neither eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant and ten commandments, which are ten statements, explaining how the universe works, how the cause and effect of the universe works. So that your days will be long upon the land, etc., etc. 29. And it came to pass when Moses came down from the mountain Sinai with the two tablets and the testimony of Moses' hand when he came down from the mount that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid, and came nigh to him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him. And Moses talked with them. Beware of that word, rulers of the congregation. We'll look at that at another time. And afterwards, the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. 
But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses and the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. So, there's actually something that is taking place different in Moses than the other people. But there is no reason why it shouldn't take place in you. And what you were seeing there, or they were seeing there, is much akin to what we see in the upper room. When a light seemed to hover on the heads or over the heads or around the heads of those original people. That is for us all. If we will repent and turn around and seek the kingdom of God in his righteousness. And Moses was telling us the same thing that Jesus Christ is telling us. Which is why I interlace those quotes from Jesus as well as from Moses. But uh, we've made it through 34. <laughs> and like I say, there's links on the page where you can go to the article on milk and meat and those other things and first fruits and lots of definitions so that you can look for these things yourself. But until then, see you on the network. Peace on your house. And may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.